Um, it's going to be a two-part class on some level. Um, and it's going to be touching upon things we've been building up to sort of this entire year. Uh, and I think also at the same time giving a really, really unique perspective. It's a, it's a topic I came across, I stumbled across um, a few months ago, and I'm trying to sort of be researching this topic. There's a fantastic book, by the way, that I'm going to mention now before I forget, uh, by a professor named Lewis Hyde. And the book is called Trickster, Tricksters Make the World, Make Our World. Tricksters, Lewis Hyde, H-Y-D-E. If you, D-E. Um, brilliant, brilliant scholar. He also has, uh, he's, he's just brilliant and a lot of what we're going to be talking about, you can, I mean, he expands tremendously on it. Um, but as far as I know, he's sort of the, um, the guy on this topic, or at least as far as I found. Um, okay, so one of the things we've been talking about, we mentioned in the past, we've spoken about the idea of type scenes, right? How there are certain scenes that sort of the overall structure of the scene repeats itself, and then we are able to sort of look at each scene and, and, and pull apart the nuances of each scene to try to understand what the Tanakh is telling us. And one of the scenes that, and again, Robert Alter is one of the first to sort of approach the Tanakh in this literary way, and I think he's actually the one that coins the phrase type scene, um, but it's been expanded upon since, is the, the meeting at the well, right? It's the most romantic place in Tanakh. A man comes to a foreign city or to a foreign area, and of course, that's perfect, right? The, the uh, Shidduch crisis would be solved if there were still wells today, probably. Um, and one of the things that the type scene enables us to do, we said, is to really be able to identify right, those differences between the characters. So if I look at the type scene with, uh, with the Eved Avraham at the well, and then I compare it to Yaakov at the well, and then I compare it to Moshe at the well, I'm able to see what the Tanakh wants me to understand about each personality in contrast to those others that came before and after him. One of the things that's really, really interesting about the type scene of the um, Rivka story, right, which we talked about last week in Parakhav Dalit, is that it really doesn't focus primarily on any of the Avot, right? With, with, the, with Yaakov, we're going to talk about Yaakov. With, um, with Moshe, obviously, his identity, Ish Mitzri Hitzilanu Miyad Haroim, is going to come into play. What's interesting about Parakhav Dalit is that, and we're going to look at a couple of psukim inside, is that really on some level what the entire type scene there was doing was focusing less on the relationship between the people that we're meeting. Right? We don't see the way that Yaakov falls in love with Rachel as soon as she walks by. Really, Perakhav Dalit, if we look at it in the context of where it appears in Brishith, is almost like a story that validates Rivka's worth as one of the matriarchs, right? It sort of validates why she belongs in our story. And we talked last week, if you remember the really, really, I thought at least, or before Hanukkah, not last week, um, the fascinating topic of the nursing mother, right? Of the milk mother versus the biological mother and the mention of Devorah, right? Milk mothers in anthropological studies more broadly and then how Devorah is sort of mentioned to speak to that distinction we talked about, the dichotomy between the outside mother and the inside mother set up by Hagar versus Sarah and how Rivka becomes an inside mother by having an inside milk mother, which in studies have shown to be sometimes more important even than the biological mother. And so one of the things that's interesting is the way that Rivka's um, is almost validated through the story of Parak, uh, that we find in Parak Chavdalit. And it's not just that she's validated because she's kind, right? On a superficial level, we could say, well, what's the parak about? And we could say Rivka's kindness, right? Rivka's chesed. She runs and she gives water not just to Eved Abraham, but to all of the animals. And that's certainly true, but there's certainly, but I think that there's something more than just the kindness. Go back to Parak Dalid just for one second. And we mentioned this, but I want to point it out again as an intro to today's and next week's topic, because I think it's going to be of utmost importance. So go to Parak Dalid. Um, and go, for example, to Pasuk Yudbet. Okay? It says, if you remember, the Eved goes, right? And he sets up this whole sort of um, scene or almost challenge with God, right? He says, if the woman comes, right? He's, or I'll, I'll we'll read it inside in Pasuk. He says to Hashem, Bayomar, Hashem elokei Adoni Avraham, Here's the kindness you should do. And he sets up this whole thing, and then the woman that should come and offer not just water to myself, but water to my cattle, that's how I know she's going to be the one. Okay, he sets it up. And then, of course, what's interesting is jump down to Pasuk Tetvav. It says, um, He's not even done speaking. 
והנה רבקה יוצאת אשר יולדה לבטואל בן מלכה אשר נפור אחי אברהם חדה על שכמה and of course as we know very well she fulfills almost word for word what the evet asks and then if we jump down to pasuk chaf alef a little further says vehaish mishtaela macharish ladat hahitzliach hashem darko imlo okay meaning is god going to make his journey successful or not and then jump down on a couple of more psukim to pasuk chavav verse 26 vayomer baruch hashem melokei adoni avraham asher lo azav chastova mitome im adoni anochi baderach nachani hashem beit achei adoni and then she does this wonderful thing she's sweating she's going back and forth to the well bringing up water and the evet is saying hashem thank you so much this is perfect okay and so this is an introduction to the topic that's going to be to be really really important in the next two classes which is the wonderful words or the theme dual causality right what does that mean dual causality it's what it sounds like two causes right and it's not unique to tanakh but tanakh certainly focuses on this a lot the idea that there are two things that are always working on some level in tandem now again it doesn't mean this is the only way things happen in the world sometimes hashem performs miracles right and sometimes man does things that god may or may not want but this idea of dual causality of the divine of hashem and humanity working in tandem and the best perhaps example of this and i think i mentioned this in the past is migilat rut right where we actually have a very similar pasuk when ami realizes that boaz is the one that's been kind to rut he says baruch she says right baruch hu la hashem asher lo azav hasto im hachayim im amitim and if you look at where the comma goes there in that pasuk is she saying baruch hu la right baruch hu la hashem is this guy blessed or is it baruch hu la hashem asher lo azav hasto and so the ambiguity there is intentional it sort of raises our consciousness who in, who do we thank in life do we thank the people that sort of do god's will or do we thank god for setting the chess pieces up perfectly on the board that humanity then picks up on and again it's sort of a give and take and there's a dynamic between them at all i think ongoing right and it's our choice to see it now the question though that we want to look at is why is why do we need this story right if we look at sarah all we know about sarah is that she's not kara she's from the family of abraham and she goes with abraham and she comes to the land and she does everything we don't have a back story for sarah right by the way we don't really have back stories for most of the avots right and for certainly for abraham right and yet when it comes to rifka we have this back story where we see not only how kind she was but how her kindness was worked perfectly in tandem with God's will or God's plan here you go for Abraham okay so why do we need that if you had to venture a guess why do we need it why do we need a back story right a back story is always coming right to sort of preempt any questions we might have Okay, excellent, excellent. Because, I'm going to repeat what she said, I think it's twofold. I think there are two things that happen that are really part of, they're really flip sides of the same coin. If you look at the story of Sarah, right, everything was relatively clear cut. Hashem says to Abraham, take Sarah, she's going to have a child, and then she doesn't have a child, so she wants to take a shifcha, and Hashem says, listen to her, whatever she says, and then she wants to kick the shifcha out, and Hashem says, kol asher tomari lecha Sarah, shema bekola, and then Hashem makes it very clear, Sarah's son is going to be the chosen one. There are no questions, there's no ambiguity, there's no lack of clarity when it comes to Abraham and who he's going to marry and who, his cho- who the chosen son is going to be okay when it comes to rifka not only is it their lack of clarity as we're going to see inside there's an intentional ambiguity there okay and that intentional ambiguity right and again intentional ambiguity we're going to see comes originates with hashem okay that initial and amb- intentional ambiguity leads to what what's the natural sort of progression from something being ambiguous is that Rivka's going to have to take sides. initiative, right? She's going to have to choose. She's going to have to take sides. And what comes from that? You could say it. Well, even more than that. Okay, and, and, and what did they have to, what did Rivka have to basically, right, come up with in order for Yaakov who she decided was going to be the chosen one. Deception. 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 Okay, deception is a big thing. 
So here we have this personality. Now, again, we're going to see that the Tanakh plants the seeds from the beginning. That initiative that Rivka takes is in tandem, is working in tandem with God's plan. Right? That's why when she gives the water, he says, thank you so much for being through kindness to Abraham. The Tanakh already sets that up from the beginning, so we don't have questions about her righteousness to start with. Okay, and again, all the other stuff we talked about in terms of last week, everything else that vouches for her righteousness or her chosenness, chosen status as a mother. But it's going to come into play even more when we talk about this concept in terms of her taking initiative. Now, if we look inside, okay, go to Paracuphe just for one second. This is one of those times where we're going to read a pasuk, we're going to translate it, and then we're going to realize after we have this sort of knee-jerk translation that we're translating it because we already know what happens, not because that's what the Tanakh may actually be saying. Okay, and we always have to be careful of that. One of the one of the sort of wonderful things is that we're all familiar with Tanakh, but it also makes it challenging to read from beginning to end instead of from end to beginning. So go to Parak Chafhe, chapter twenty-five, for one second. Pasuk Chav Gimel, verse twenty-three. We're going to start actually with Pasuk. Uh, you know what? We'll go to Pasuk. Start with Yudte. Okay, it says as follows. Okay. So we're given this sense, again, if you remember, we spoke about the mythical truth versus the narrative truth. Narrative truth, we know that Abraham gave birth to Yitzchak and to Ishmael and to all the other children that he had later on that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. But right now we're dealing with mythical truth. Okay. So it's given her pedigree. Right? Another sort of in Tanakh's worldview, right? Another sort of vouching for her status as this, or not necessarily as a chosen mother, but as a mother that will have, right, this chosen child. And then almost instantaneously, God listens, and she becomes pregnant. Now, we're not going to spend too much time right now on the question itself. Right? It seems there was some unrest, and twins, actually, we could, I actually had a class, but we're, I, I didn't want to get stuck in the avot. I want to be able to move now soon on to Shemot. Um, but one of the things, twins in the ancient world was a very unnerving pregnancy for people first medically, but also because of what it meant in terms of not being able to distinguish between individuals. It was a very bizarre experience for people. Twins threw people off in the ancient world. And so she seeks what we're going to call an oracle. Right? A nivuah, an oracle. And now Hashem responds to her. And that's just right parallelism. Two nations are going to emerge from you and split off. And then Hashem goes on and he says, One will get stronger from the other. And now someone tell me what the next three words mean. Okay, so there's two problems here, or two challenges with interpreting this pasuk. Okay, one is lexical, meaning what does the word actually mean, and one we're going to see is syntactical, which means where do we put the comma? Okay, so let's start with the lexical. If I asked you, right here, the words, are you not? I'm going to actually erase. Sorry. I'm going to erase this for one second. I'll put it higher up because I want to. Okay? Someone translate the Pasuk. Don't be scared. <laughs> okay, so excellent. So we always assume the older will serve the younger because we know down the line that Yaakov ultimately trumps Esav or that on some level that there's right maybe the seesaw effect, right? Even there, it's not clear. One nation will get stronger from the other. What does that mean? Meaning on some level, when one is down, the other is up. Yeah? There was also the definition of which one is the older and which is the younger. Because there was the theory that the one that uh, came out first was in sec was put in second, and that the older one was up on was on top. Yeah, but that's already out. reading in Midrashim, who was conceived first, who came out. But that's already. Let's just look at the words meaning. And again, so that's why important. Why do they use the word rod? Ah, oh, okay. 
thank you, right? You said it's not older. We assume, okay, so let's look at when we talk about, okay, let's see how do we talk about younger and older, even just in Breshit. We're not going beyond Breshit. Go back to Breshit Yud, Pasuk Chavalef. Okay, chapter 10, verse 21. Uleshem yulad gam hu. And by the way, if it's annoying to flip around and to get lost in the psukim, I'll read it out loud. You could also just listen and I'll put the words up here. Parak yud pasuk chaval. Uleshem yulad gam hu avi kol b'nei ever achi yefet hagadol. Okay? So meaning, if we're talking about older and younger, what word is usually used? Okay, and we see it also, by the way, and again, you don't have to switch if it's going to just sort of disorient you, but all the way at the end of Rishi, in Memdalid, when Yosef is looking through the sacks, okay, Perak Memdalid Pasuk Yud Bet, it says, Vayichapes Bagadol Hechel Uvakaton Kila. So Yosef is going through the sack, so he starts with Reuven, and then he goes all the way down to Binyamin, where, of course, he finds it and it builds up the tension. What? Gadol. Okay, so we have Gadol and Katan when we're referring to older and younger brothers. Okay? Now, what is the word? Now, Rav, by the way, is not used anywhere in Breshit, really not even in the Torah, or in the, excuse me, in the entire Tanakh, as a designation for older. Right? Older is a relative term. It's never used for older. Okay? What does it mean? Okay, so go, for example, to Breshit Chav Zayin, which we're going to get to soon in this class. Chav uh, Zayin 27. Pasuk Chav 28. And this is in the bracha that he receives. It says, Retain... Vitain lecha elokim mital hashamayim umishmanei haaretz virov dagan vatirosh. You should have lots of everything that he is being blessed with, right? And we even every in one of the brachot that Yaakov gives, right? Hamalacha goel der vidgula rov bekerav haaretz. Rav implies great, right? Multitudes, many. Okay. Now, um, what about sa'ir? What does sa'ir usually mean? Okay, younger, right? And even go to later when uh, when Lavan deceives Yaakov, remember, and he gives the younger one. Go to Perakhaftet, and Yaakov wakes up in the morning. And by the way, someone actually mentioned recently, I think it's a fascinating, it's a total side point while you're finding the place, Perakhaftet, Pasuk Yudzain, that Vihine may not necessarily mean that Yaakov woke up and realized. Hine is for the reader, right? Vihine Boaz, Bamin Hasadet. We don't know who's seeing him. We're seeing him come. So the Hinei could be that Yaakov already knew. We find out, right, That she, which, which sort of adds another dimension to Yaakov's choice there. Chavtet, pasuk tedzayin, right? It says, ulelavan shtei banot, shem hagdola leyav, shem haktana rachel. So you have gadol and katan, okay? And then, of course, we also have later on when Yaakov calls Lavan on it, what does Yaakov, what does Lavan respond to him, if you remember? He says, Right, Yaakov, I don't know what happens where you come from, but here, right, protocol dictates, Okay, so you have Sa'ir versus Bachor, and again, they're, Bachor, they're relative terms, but that's how they're paired for the most part. Okay, and again, we have lots of other psukim where Bachor is paired with Sa'ir to distinguish between who's the older and who's the brother. So the first question is, why is this, what does this mean, Virav Yavod Sa'ir? There's an ambiguity. The greats are going to are going to work for the, the many, excuse me, are going to work for the younger, but is the younger really, is Sa'ir here? Right, if Sa'ir is relative terms, so is Sa'ir mean younger than them? Does it just, we don't know, okay? And again, we could, one avenue could be to try to make sense of this Pasuk. I'm going to say that the Pasuk is ambiguous for a reason, and we're going to see, okay? It works perfectly for Yosef. Ah, um, oh, that's funny. That's very funny. What do you mean it works Because <coughs> the many brothers will be working. Oh, oh. But now we're going to go to the syntactical ambiguity. Right? It only works perfectly for Yosef if what we're saying is Mirav Yavu Sa'ir. Then most okay? of them. And in English, by the way, that's right, the great will serve the young. Okay? There's no It's very bizarre in Hebrew to have this word order. There's no it. 
correct. Yeah, but the right tatsa ia was not clear. And yeah, but the singular. What if I put a comma there? Which actually is more authentic to biblical word order. Virav. The younger will be serving. The older, the, the majority. Correct. Okay. Meaning, and again, we could stand here and try to figure out which one it is. We're not. Okay. Because what I want to do is focus on this whole element. If we're sitting here struggling, trying to make sense of it, trying to understand what it means, there is something in oracles in general in the ancient world, and we see other examples of this in Tanakh as well, where Hashem will answer something, but it's not actually entirely clear what's meant to come from that. Okay, this is perhaps the best example, but there are other cases also where someone asks a question and the question is answered and we think we understand what it's talking about, but then if we look closely, it actually can mean four different things. Yeah? But either way you do this, if you put the comma or you don't put the comma, um, it, it's, I mean, like what she said about uh, it works for, for Yaakov that, you know, uh, all the other brothers will serve the, the younger one. Yosef. Uh, I mean Yosef, I'm sorry. But, but here, we don't have many. We only have two brothers. Correct. That's so why we're saying I, this so is a very bizarre, confusing oracle. It doesn't oracle. make any sense whether you put the comma or not. It doesn't make sense. Correct. But both possibilities are left open. Right? But what, is it, what does it mean? I mean, I don't understand it. Neither do we. That's exactly the point. We don't know what it means. Now, again, but, 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 hold on, right? Think again. One of the things we're going to talk about today is the way that so many things in Tanakh are so similar to ancient myths and the way that we understood things in the ancient world. How oracles in the ancient world, oftentimes, right? And I'm not talking now about Nivua where Hashem says, Vayomer Hashem El Yirmiyahu, go and tell people. But even in Nivua, right? Hashem says, Mataraway Yirmiyahu. And he says, Sir Nafuach. And he says, What do you think that means? And Yirmiyahu answers, right? The greatness of the Nivim was being able to intuit or understand the obscure messages Hashem was giving them, okay? Part of oracles in general, from all of the, is sort of this idea that there was something ambiguous about it and that on some level, Right? Humanity plays a part. That's why we're going back to the dual causality. We play a part in how fate plays out. Okay? It's not as clear as other times where Hashem says, Kol asher tamar sarash That's not what's happening here. And the Tanakh already sets the pace when Rivka is, Hashem is being thanked for Rivka's kindness, the dual causality element is already introduced. Yeah? Isn't it also Verab? A response to what Hashem said earlier: You're going to have two nations. He's not talking. You're going to have two children. And Correct. You're going to have a little sibling rivalry. No, he's talking about now. Correct. 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 So Rav would be more. Alive. More fitting for a nation than an individual. But then, how do you explain Sa'ir? So that's the problem. Right. <laughs> Correct. Except I don't think it's gonna be such a problem because I think, and again, we're not gonna be finishing what we do today. So you're gonna have to. We're gonna have a commercial break. You're gonna have to come back next week because nothing we're saying today is gonna make sense. Okay. I'm just warning you. Um, I think on some level we're meant to call into call. these. If you remember, we spoke about how dichotomies, right, are the way they sort of the binaries is the way we make sense of the world. Yaakov is going to be the personality that is emblematic of calling binaries into question, or calling the order that we create in the world, or the patterns that we think we see, into question, and he represents a very important phenomenon in the world entirely. So you're right, these binaries make sense. It would make sense if it said Barav Yavod, um, even Katan on some level, or, but you're right, it does not, the binary does not make sense, even though Rav makes more sense for the national scale, 100%. But you're Correct, correct. That's exactly what we're saying. Okay, so let's talk a little bit. Okay, deception is going to be a very, very important topic. Now, one very important thing we have to be careful. We cannot superimpose our modern sensibilities that deception is a bad thing and deception is bad. Yes, there are many, many times where deception is bad. But we are now getting back into the minds of ancient Israel, who were the original audience of Tanakh, the Torah Hilshon B'nai Adam, meaning the people that heard it first. Deception meant and represented something very, very differently for many, many, many millennia. Okay, and we're going to see. I actually don't think that much has changed, even though we like to imagine it did. Okay. Okay. So excellent. So there's different levels to talk about deception. I have here on your first, on your first. Um, 
Oh, we could, all right, I skipped over the first source where it talks about the word order. You can read that on your own. I don't want to get stuck back in there now. Deception, but you can look. It's really actually really, really important. Okay, Jasinius, by the way, the name Jasinius that you're going to see in here, um, he's one of the fathers of Hebrew, lex, of Hebrew grammar. Okay, there's a, the whole D book on biblical, on biblical grammar is called Jasinius Couch Cow. It's like, I think, three authors. So him quoted, that's sort of the stamp of what biblical uh, grammar should look like. When, okay. When was he? When did he write? I, have no idea. I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. Um, I mean, in the last couple of centuries, it was, I think he was German maybe originally. Okay, deception is going to be understood on two levels. And in some of my earlier courses, we've actually talked about deception, and some of you may have seen this chart before. This is, again, I don't want to say comprehensive, because you might come up after class and say you have five other examples. If you do, I'll add them. But this is a list of the acts of deception in Tanakh. Okay, deception is all over Tanakh, and you'd be hard-pressed to find stories in Tanakh that where our, many of our heroes don't actually engage in some form of deception or not. Okay? Now, if you look at this list, okay, you're going to notice a couple of things, and that's, I think, the first level um, when we're talking about deception. It's the first level that we need to understand deception on. What do you notice in terms of who deceives whom and, and how, why it happens? Look at the list. Okay, so it works out nicely, although not entirely, right? That our heroes are the ones deceiving, although not always, right? Shimon and Levi's behavior, we can argue, is questionable. At least Yaakov calls it into question. Um, but what do you notice? Who? And by the way, the deception, or what we're going to see, trickster, right, is a, is a very, very, very broad uh, motif in lots and lots of ancient writings, in Native American writings, in black slaves in America. Frederick Douglass is your typical... Right, sort of trickster or deceiver, right? Because he, he sort of, what is deception? How's he used? Think about the Mieldot. Okay, the Mieldot power says, I want you to kill every baby. And then they secretly birth the babies, and then they say, oh my gosh, power, we're totally on your side. We thought we, we wanted, but these women, these Israelites, they're like animals. They have babies in the fields. What are we supposed to do? We're on your, right? What are they doing, and why are they resorting to deception? And the word resort is the most important word. So the deceiver is considered weaker. Okay. Excellent. If you look consistently and you think about all the different power structures that existed in the ancient world, okay, you have patriarchy. It's always going, not because women are deceitful, and for those of you who are in my women's class, Tanakh is not chauvinistic, not even a tiny bit, right? Women deceive perhaps more often than men because in a patriarchal world, they had less authority or less power, and so they had to deceive in order to get what they wanted done. Okay, deception is what people resort to when the society in which they live or the specific dynamic or relationship that they're in doesn't afford them the authority to do what they want in straightforward means. So you're going to find women deceiving men. You're not really going to find men deceiving women because if a man wants to do something in the ancient world, he's going to do it. He doesn't need to deceive her. You're going to find lay people deceiving kings, not vice versa. Right? A lay person, you're going to see prophets needing to deceive lay people because prophets were oftentimes peripheralized and not, not liked, and they were sort of within the right, hierarchy, even though we venerate them. Right? But if you think about, for example, and this is actually a great example because it's Hashem deceiving, not just a prophet. Right? Shmuel has told to go anoint David, and Shmuel says, I don't know, Hashem, I'm so nervous. They're going to like pelt me or something because they're Shaul loyalists. And Hashem says, no, Shmuel, don't worry. Go up, bring an animal with you, pretend you're going to bring a sacrifice, and then when you get there, you anoint David. But if anyone asks you on the way where you're going, just say you're going to bring a, a korban to Hashem. Right? So deception is a way of... Right? Almost balancing out the imbalance when it comes to power structures in the ancient world. And if you look consistently at all of the examples, the avot deceive when they're in a foreign land and the king is about to kidnap their wife. Right? And, and again, look consistently, it's always going to be that. Now, for the most part, okay, not only does the Tanakh, what? Okay, so hold that. We're going to get to that. Lavan and Yaakov is going to be the topic of, of the next two, right? Today's class, a tiny bit, but really next week. Okay, um, one Tanakh does not condemn deception outright. Okay, if it's a means to survival or a means to saving other people, right? Rachav deceived the the king of Yericho 
kudos to her, right? Same with the Isha that hides uh, David's men, in, uh, the woman that hides David's men inside the well. The same thing. The deception, if it's used for a positive means, is not only not condemned, but it's condoned consistently. And Hashem often tells not often, but there are cases where Hashem, he tells David to deceive the people if he's going on the way up and they want to, and they're trying. He tells Moshe, right? Go tell Paro, you just want to go out for three days into the Midbar. Really? That's not the plan. Right? That's not, that hasn't been the plan since the Brit Bain of Batarian. It doesn't matter. Okay, so deception is not outright condemned, except when's the obvious exception? When it's uh, against Halakha. Okay, right, well, so Halakha, right, either if it's against Halakha. Like what uh, Tamar did. Okay, so I'm going to put that on the side. We'll address okay, it a separate so time. I do not think that's... Um, yes, if harm is done to innocent people, right, if deception is used... What? Shrem is a perfect example. The, uh, the question there, which is really, really interesting, is... She, she gave her as if she was going to go to sleep. Yeah, yeah, right. She deceived sister to kill him. She deceived him completely. 100%. Y'all one of the millions. That's correct. And the daughters of... Um, yeah, try growing up in America explaining what your namesake is to people. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> she stuck a 10 peg through some guy's head. Um, she was giving another example of deception. But I will say, okay, and Shrem is an interesting example because Yaakov criticizes them. Hashem does not outright criticize them, and they have the last word in the in the parak, right? And it's so I don't want to. I right now we're just it's beyond scope. But I would argue that I would say that is for the most part the sort of ground rule is if innocent people are killed, and that's why the question, right, is Shem innocent or not? If people are killed, if it's not for righteous ends, if it's not deception, is not given the green light across the board. Deception is a means people in, pow- in, in positions of lesser power resort to in order to tip the scale so that they're able to accomplish what they need to accomplish. And that's why the example you gave, right, in the Holocaust, people using smarts to out. That's why in, in the slave literature from the early, right, it, it was always about the black slave being able to outwit his white master because in theory the white master is so much smarter and literate and powerful, but if the black slave is able to, that's what the Frederick Douglass narrative is all about, right, able to outsmart, right, to learn to read when they think you can't read, all of that, okay? So... That's one level of deception, power brokers, okay? But I think there's another issue that's really, really important, and I think it's going to really change how we see Yaakov, and it's totally changed how I see him, so I hope it'll do that for you also. Um, And to understand it, we have to go back a tiny bit to the beginning of the semester when I introduced the topic of archetypes, Carl Jung's archetypes, right? And we said that, um, and I have it actually on the sheets, right? Carl Jung, he was the uh, psychologist, and he talked about what he sort of, he was a psychologist, he was also an expert in world mythology, okay? And one of the things he found interesting was the sort of cross, I don't want to call it cross-pollination, but were the similarities and the overlapping motifs in mythology from throughout the world and throughout time. And what really sort of got him thinking was when he was working with his, men, with his um, psychiatric patients, and he realized that patients who had, for example, never seen a mandala, all of a sudden were describing it or drawing it when they woke up from a dream. Okay? And he talks about archetypes as being these sort of patterns that we are almost born with. Right? We imagine a baby is born with a clean slate, and he argues human beings are not born with a clean slate, just like we're born with preformed organs in our body. We are also born with preformed that we inherit, right? these sort of preformed structures or patterns in our brains. Okay, now you'll see why all of this is important. So look, for example, on your pages. He talks about the conscious realm. Okay, he he says there's the conscious and the unconscious. The conscious we all know, right? Whatever crosses our field of awareness, consisting of those psychic contents that one has knowledge of. We all know what consciousness is. And then he talks about subconscious, right? Psychic contents which one is unaware of. But where he sort of veers off, or where his chidush is, is that he distinguishes into two different unconsciouses. Okay, there's the personal unconscious, which is what I think we're all more familiar with. It's more Freudian. It is particular to each individual. It consists of events of one's life that are deemed insignificant, are forgotten, or are repressed due to their distressing nature. Good, we all know about that. (coughs) Then he talks about the collective unconscious, and this is really what his entire field of study is sort of based on. He talks, he says, consists of psychic structures or cognitive categories which are not unique to the individual, but rather are shared by all, 
influencing our thoughts, behaviors, and the way we look at the world. Okay? And I'll read you just one other really interesting. He says, from the unconscious, there emanate determining influences, which independently of tradition, right? I may never, my mother may never have sat down and said, there's the archetype mother figure. There's the archetype we're going to see today, trickster. There's our, but he says that what the human brain essentially does and has always done, right, is create patterns in the world that we perceive. And those patterns become archetypes. Now, I could say, right, how do I know someone has a heart? Because you could look into the human body and you could see that they have a heart. They have lungs. They have muscle. Okay? He says, how do we know that these archetypes exist? Because of the manifestations or the symbols that appear in all ancient mythologies, religions, etc. Okay? Um, I'll read you just the end. It says, influencing all our thoughts, behaviors, and the way we look at, uh, sorry, which independently of tradition guarantee in every single individual a similarity and even sameness of experience and also of the way it is represented imaginatively. Okay? There are cultures that never crossed each other's paths, okay, that existed on different ends of the world, that both conceived of this idea that there's a navel of the earth, Tabor Haaretz, right? What we call Tabor Haaretz, that there's a navel of the earth in which everything began, and it's the center, and they conceive of the world in rings. Or we conceive of heavens up there and everything else down here, or the three-tiered, right? Who told us that heavens and all the angels are up there, and man is down? All of this comes from the way he would understand it, the way that the human mind universally, right, and transcending time works. Okay, now, why is any of this important? Because symbols are really, really critical, and there are symbols both in terms of visual symbols, right? And again, if you start looking at what he points out, all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, all of those symbols are so similar, right, without us even realizing it. Symbols is one thing, but then there's also what he calls these archetypes, okay? Archetypes are almost sort of personalities or types that appear throughout history, throughout religious narratives, etc that represent something to humanity, okay? Meaning we express or we understand the world as being broken down into these archetypes, okay? Now, there is one of the, yeah? Can you give examples? I'm, I'm going to give one right now, okay? So one of the oldest, okay, and sort of longest running archetypes is what's known as the trickster, okay? Now, again, we're not... We're not superimposing our judgments onto the trickster. We're going to do half the trickster today. He's going to seem kind of negative. We're going to see next week why it's actually one of the most positive archetypes and the world cannot exist or our understanding of the world cannot exist without this trickster archetype. Okay? And by the way, sorry, let me just put up in big, 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 bold words. Be brown. Can you give us another Correct. one? One sec. Kill Sean. Benet. Adam. We know you're okay. going to talk about the trickster. Give us another one. Um, you have the archetypal father, right, figure, the one that everyone sort of always turns to when he's understood. I don't want to say patriarch because it's going to be confused with the avot. But yes, the archetypal leader. father. What? A leader. Um, is leader an archetype? It's very possible it is. You have the culture hero that's going to overlap with the, um, with the trickster we're going to see next week. The brave one? Um, the yes, okay, hunter is a perfect example, okay? What does a hunter represent? What does the hunter who's going out into the field, who's sort of crossing, you have the, ah, I'll give you a perfect example that overlaps with Tanakh, okay? You have the sort of wild, hairy man archetype, right? Which is Shimshon, right? The Shimshon that sort of crosses. He has supernatural Supernatural strength, but also sort of calls into question that back. Hercules and the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and all of those archetypes that really essentially force us to call into question, right, what's wild and what's civilized, right? Are we, right, think about all the movies. What's the problem with all them is that we think we're so civilized, but then we're trapping E.T. and we're putting him in a cage and we're doing medical, so is that really civilized? So, right, what, what that archetype does, right, and again, it's not did it live, did it, forget whether it's fantasy or reality. What it represents to us is calling into question this idea of what's wild and what's cultured. So Shimshon in Sefer Shoftim, where we were acting a lot more wild than we should have been, right? we were not adhering to our culture, so Shimshon becomes sort of that, that archetype that crosses those thresholds and forces us to call into question where do we belong. And 
sort of with those super, you know, those powers that are half animal, half human type thing. Okay, that's a perfect example. Okay. Um, I think superheroes are an extension of all of the other sort of right demigods that existed in ancient times. I'm not again. I don't. I, I don't. I don't want to get stuck on too many tangents. Carl Jung archetypes. You could find millions of, of you know articles on it. Um, okay. Why is the trickster important? We're focusing only on one element of the trickster today, and then we're going to be focusing more really on what's going on. And I'm going to give you just a couple of the characteristics. Now, again, when we say characteristics, we have to be so so careful. Right? One of the dangers, sort of, of an archetype is that you you sort of uh, oversimplify what these really complex motifs were in ancient cultures. Okay, or in cultures up until this time. There's a lot of studies on Native American mythology and the trickster in Native American mythology. So whatever I say, always take with, you know, understanding that we're going to be sort of breaking it down to its most basic components, but we could be also, we're oversimplifying really rich traditions and narratives. Okay, the trickster essentially is, he's, the characteristic is, okay, that he has this very strange combination of benevolence on the one hand, right? He's not evil. The trickster is not the villain archetype, okay? Villains are evil. The trickster is not a villain. The trickster just has sort of this mischievous side. He plays tricks. Sometimes, and again, depending on the millions of different stories, sometimes for fun, sometimes towards an end, okay? But essentially what he does, the trickster, is he breaks the rules. Society has rules, and the trickster breaks them. So if you look at Prometheus, who goes and steals the fire for humanity from the gods, so he's breaking the rules, because the gods were supposed to have fire, and humans were not supposed to, and here's this sort of figure that's going and stealing the fire from the gods to give it to people. Okay? There's... Um, sort of benevolence, but also mischievism, right? Because, and it's a strange combination because mischief can sometimes hurt other people, right? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. We're going to talk about that. But again, he's sort of the rule, by, by creating this deception, most often what happens is rules that society takes as a given are broken or called into question, or we, right, what it represents to us is we're forced to question, are those rules as solid as we thought, or is perhaps there another force that's forcing us to reassess why those rules exist to begin with, okay? Now, um, what's interesting is oftentimes the deceiver is both clever but also foolish, okay? So sometimes he's deceiving others. Oftentimes he's deceived by others and seems almost like, what? Well, why do you not get that, right? Why are you being deceived if you're the deceiver? Shouldn't you be one step ahead? But sometimes... Right? And we could think in Yaakov's life, it doesn't take, right? Um, but there's sort of, he sort of exists on the margins of what's socially and morally and, and accepted as the way people behave. The trickster sort of comes in and through his deceitfulness calls all of that, sorry, uh, into question. Okay? Now, and again, you can look in Greek mythology, right? What, you're the myth, no, aren't you the myth expert? Right? You have Hermes. We have um, Loki from the from the Norse mythology. You have all throughout, throughout, throughout. Is it different than the Israel Museum about Peter Pan? Yeah. Oh, okay, Peter Pan is another great. Correct. Peter Pan, I mean, if you, right, I'm someone, I was, I was asking my kids for examples, like modern day examples, and I don't remember half of the ones because I didn't read most of the, um, but even, right, like the Bugs Bunny character, right? The hunter keeps thinking he has Bugs Bunny, but then Bugs Bunny is somehow able to let, so there's always the deceptive characters, right? It's not about are they evil or, what? Um, oh, that's interesting. Yes, correct, correct. The three pigs. Um, a lot of fairy tales have this, right? Uh, correct, correct. What? Yes, Robin Hood is a, correct. Robin Hood would be a perfect example, right? The rules that exist, so he's calling those into question. He's undermining the hierarchy or the, or the right, the rules that exist. Yeah. We just celebrated the victory of the deceiver, the Maccabee, the guerrilla warfare against the um, that's interesting. Is guerrilla? Oh, that's interesting. Guerrilla warfare might be a manifestation. That's interesting. That's really, really interesting. Because uh, so much of Israel. By the way, the reason deception appeals so much to us, it goes without saying, right? Is is. David played insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David what? David pretended to be insane with the king of Gath. Yeah. Ah, uh, so that's what they were saying, and I didn't read them, so I didn't. What? <laughs> 
I so, need a trickster ghost. Correct. Okay, so again, I didn't read it, so I can't, but I, I would assume. By the way, in modern times, someone actually recently, I was someone who was making comedians potentially play the role, not of, they're not deceiving anyone, right? But of sort of shining a light on, of just pushing the boundaries just a little bit, pushing the envelope, saying something just a little too inappropriate that other people are going, but even though we're saying, oh my gosh, how could they say that? What they're really doing is pointing to something in society that they feel needs to be changed, needs to be, okay? Now, why is any of this important? We're going to talk about Yaakov. Yaakov is, and again, it's going to look negative today. I promise we're going to redeem Yaakov to, uh, next week. But the Yaakov is his entire life, more than anyone, right? Look at all the lists. So David deceives at times. And Yaakov's entire life from beginning to end, from prenatal Yaakov, where he grabs onto Esau's heel, okay, is about this, is about trying, right, saying he's supposed to be first, I'm supposed to be second, hold on, I am going to try something tricky to get out first before him, okay, that's before he's even born, and then we said the oracle to Rivka is really, really confusing, and really, really ambiguous, and we're not really entirely sure, and it's almost as if Rivka is forced to resort to deception, or to some sort of tricky means, because Hashem never said, to her, okay, now, if we go, for example, um, go to Parak Chavzayim, Ah, one really important thing, sorry, I forgot to mention. One of the ways, one of the things that often happens in these stories, okay, and Aesop's Fables, by the way, has a lot of more modern um, variations of this, right, archetype. One of the things that's really interesting, I was listening to one online yesterday about this, um, uh, a girl who ends up turning into a fox and her father is coming and he's the hunter and he wants to shoot her so he tries to trap her with, with salmon but he sees something soft in her eyes but then his hunter instinct comes in and he wants to trap her and there's this whole back and forth and it's really a story about individuation etc etc but what's interesting is oftentimes one of the ways that the deceiver right or the trickster deceives is by shape shifting is by appearing if he's one animal to appear as another animal or to, what? It's like every of course, of course, of course. By the way, almost every Disney movie has, right? You have the hero, the villain, and then the trickster, right? The, the um, what's his name? The snowman. The, the clown that kind of, you kind of, he's silly, but kind of he's also saying the obvious that no one else who's following the rules can say, right? What? The jester. Okay, so sometimes the jester and the and the trickster are overlapped. Tamar did that. She covered her face. Yeah, listen, deception oftentimes in, right involves you know sort of concealing your true identity. But the shape shifting, particularly into animals, but then the other person sometimes seeing either the eyes or something that reminds them of the original person. But then they sort of brush that off and say, no, 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 it must be what I see in front of me. Okay. Huh? Beauty and the Beast, or Yitzchak feeling Yaakov's arm and saying, hmm, there's an element there of deception, but sort of, again, not shape-shifting in the mythical supernatural. Kissing the frog. What? Kissing the frog. Correct, 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 because a princess kisses a frog, even though, okay. So here we go. Go to Paraklub Zion very, very quickly. And... We're just going to now read it through again. We are not judging. We are not deciding was Yaakov right, was Rivka right, is lying good or bad. What we're looking at is considering this trickster archetype of the person that calls the rules into question through deception, but we're going to see next week why it's a positive thing. What, right, how does he, how does our variation of the trickster appear? And then we're going to see something really, really interesting. Um, Okay, so one of the things also, by the way, don't, don't forget, is that right before, uh, actually, okay, we're going to skip that. We're going to start from the beginning. Chaf Zayin Pasuk Aleph. Because that's what should happen. The Gadol should get the bracha. And again, if you're, whoever mentioned hunter before is an archetype, right? It's not coincidental that Esav is the hunter and Yaakov is the one that sits in the tent. 
but very kashomat bidaber Yitzchak el esav bino. Right, so there's already something tricky there. There's something sort of she's almost eavesdropping in to see what's happening. She's not part of the dialogue. It's not a three-way conversation. She's listening in. Where was I? What was I just in? Hey, Rivka Shomad with the very talk Elisav Bino, Vayela Chesav Hasadela Tsud Tayid Lahavi, Rivka Amra El Yaakov Bina, right? So she sort of circumvents. She doesn't say, hey, Yitzhak, I have a different idea. She goes around him. Vlemor, Hine Shamati et Avicha Midaber Elisav Achicha, Lemor. And now she's giving Yaakov all the secrets, so to speak, right? There was a private conversation between Yitzchak and Esav, and now she's retelling it to Yaakov. <laughs> They are partners in this crime, so to speak, right? Right, the obvious problem. He's worried that it's going to backfire. Okay, but and again, it's interesting. He's worried it's going to backfire. He's not worried that what that he's doing the wrong thing. Okay, he's worried it's going to backfire and he'll get a klala instead. Vatomer lo imo alai kilat chabni achshma bekoliv lech kachli. Okay, and again, even the concept of blessings and curses is something that's lost on us that we have to sort of re. Orient ourselves. And the Tanakh keeps reminding us, Gadol Katan, Gadol Katan, lest we forget that So now he is the shapeshifter, right? He is appearing as something that he's not. Okay, and again, without trying to sort of minimize or mitigate what he did, he is outright deceiving his father. And then, of course, it goes on and on. And he says, Right? I recognize those eyes, but it's on a fox, so it must just be a fox. Okay? And so it goes on and on, and it goes without saying, he gets the bracha, and then Asaph comes back. And I'm going to read this pasuk out loud because this is important. Pasuk lamid hey, Asaph comes back and he starts to scream when he realizes the bracha was stolen out from under him. Okay. Vayomer. And now Asaph creates his own etymology. Okay, first he took my bchora, and now he took my bracha. And we skipped over, just in the interest of time, we skipped over parakha pei, where Yaakov does what? Where he takes advantage of Esav being famished, right? And he has this conveniently, because he knows he's going to be coming home from the cold, has conveniently this stew, right, cooking that smells delicious, and he uses it to get what he wanted. And again, we're not deciding good, bad. We're looking at what he, how he functions in the text. Now, there are two things that are really, really interesting, okay? Or I'll, and I'm going to start with the one that I think is most um, significant for us in terms of what the trickster means. And again, we're going to talk about this next week. Go to Parakhavchet. Right, Esav comes back, he finds out that Yaakov did what he did, and now he wants to kill him, because obviously. And so Rivka sends him out, and she sends him basically into exile, okay, to go live with her family so that he can sort of be immune for, for its uh, witness protection program, okay? Now, Chavchet, Pasuk Yud Gimel, okay? Or start with even Pasuk Yud. 
ויצא יעקב מבאר שבע, וילך חרנה, ויפגע במקום, וילם שם כי בא השמש, ויקח מאבני המקום, ויעשה מראשותיו, וישכב במקום ההוא. He puts the, the rocks under his head and he has this famous dream. But what's important is, Hashem is standing there, okay, and he says to him in the dream, V'hinei Hashem pasuk yud gimel, Hinei Hashem nitzav alav v'yomar, Ani Hashem elokei Avraham avicha, ואלוקי יצחק, הארץ אשר אתה שוכב עליה, לך אתננה ולזרעך, והיה זרעך כעפר הארץ, ופרצת ימה וקדמה וצפונה ונגבה, ונברכו בך כל משפחות האדמה ובזרעך. Why is that really, really important? It's the same ברכה אברהם got, it's the same ברכה יצחק got in the beginning of פרח אפאב. Okay, there's this perfect line of descent from Abraham to Yitzchak to Yaakov. But this bracha is coming on the heels of what? Okay. Of the trickster. Okay, so Hashem gives an ambiguous oracle. Then you have a trickster mother and a trickster son tricking, getting the bracha of the Bechorah, and then Hashem saying, good, plan worked. Okay, so what we're going to have to address next week, of course, is why Hashem, right, how this, again, if it's all dual causality, Hashem seems to not only be involved, but condoning the behavior. Okay, <laughs> approving, sanctioning, whatever words you want to use, it's all there. It seems obvious because uh, uh, Yaakov touched that this food right away. How did he get it right away? But the, okay, so let me reform the question, okay? The question we need to look at is not, or at least what we're going to choose. We're not getting stuck on, was it right, was it wrong, why did it, let, eh, put it aside. What we're saying is, if Hashem wanted Yaakov to be the next in line to begin with, and he made it clear to Avram who the next one should be, why was it not clear? Why is the oracle ambiguous? Why is it opening, what about the trickster in Tanakh, right? Why is Tanakh, and again, not creating, but why is Tanakh telling about those means that Yaakov Avinu used, presenting him as the trickster, what value is this archetype to us? Because Hashem could have said, Ki Yaakov the same way he said it about Yitzchak, but it doesn't. It creates an ambiguity. It sort of pushes Yaakov and Rivka into a corner where they are the tricksters, and then Hashem sanctions it after. So there's something valuable in the trickster figure that the Tanakh sees, okay, and is using as a model on some level. Now again, we're going to see, it doesn't mean he doesn't suffer, okay? The trickster is not an easy person to be, but there's value in it, the Tanakh seems to be saying. I'm going to hold questions for once, oh, okay, yeah, really quick. Um, because, I mean, from the very beginning, I could have just had Yaakov been born first. He could have been because born first, there could have not been twins. Right? Meaning Hashem is Hashem. Do, do what you got to do. They were twins. It's unclear. One was supposed to come out first, but one came. One was holding on to the heel of the other. And then it's not really clear what this whole oracle meant. And then one has the Bechorah, but does the Bechorah necessarily imply that he gets the Bracha? And if Yitzchak gives him the Bracha, does that mean he's the... It, it almost it's, sounds like Hashem is deceiving. Well, well that's not. Or <coughs> condoning. Or... Well, we don't know what Hashem, right, we, what Hashem, <coughs> correct, Yaakov was the one. Yaakov the Brahma in the dream, but, but, but the question is, why did he make it come about on earth, whatever, correct. that is, okay, so that's the question, what is, we're going to summarize the question, then we have to read one really quick episode before we end, the, the summarized question is, what for us, is valuable in the trickster. What does the Tanakh feel? We have to learn from the trickster archetype, right? By create by by creating this reality, by telling us the story the way it does, by creating the reality the way it did. What are we to take from this trickster archetype that appears throughout the world? What does it mean to us in our Torah? Yeah. I think that the whole trickster thing is addressing an imbalance of power and the. If you can't go straight up against that power, you find a way around it. Okay, so yes. So, okay, I don't want to answer the question now. I don't want to answer it. That we're going to get to next week. But there's something about power, but it's not always limited to power either. Right? Yes, oftentimes it is, right? If you're stealing something from the gods to bring it to humanity, then you're saying, why should they have that and not us? But it's not only 
right? Deception, when we looked at superficially, is power. The trickster figure, not always, right? Trickster figure could be pointing to something else in society. The trickster addresses the imbalance of power by tricking rather than going head-to-head with it. Ah, yeah, but sometimes he tricks people that are also more pathetic than him in the stories, right? It's not always I have to trick a king. Sometimes he tricks the turtle, Some, right? Sometimes it's the hare tricking the other animals in the forest. Sometimes it's the, the coyote, by the way, is big in Native American mythology. It's the coyote. So again, why they associate certain animals with certain behaviors. But we're not even, why is the Tanakh using this archetype? Yeah. Is there, like, something that's bothering me about this trickster Correct. That's why I said we can't break it down to one summary. Sometimes they're just mischievous. Sometimes it's for specific means. She's saying sometimes some of the, let's say, in the Greek mythology, it seems almost like they're just mischievous. And here it's for a specific reason. 100%. That's why we're saying they're not all exactly the same. They're overlapping traits. Yeah, but again, I think it's more, I, that was the first level we looked at, but I think it's more profound than that. I don't think it's just reshifting the power balance. I, I think it's more, I, listen, again, I think that's one level. 100% that's one level, but I think it's more profound. I think the trickster represents something bigger than just, uh-oh, there's an imbalance, I have to lie to get what I need. There's more than that, yeah. In Tanakh, in Tanakh, more often than not, they're oftentimes rebelling against, the, that, that's what we're going to talk about next week. In Tanakh, Hashem and the tricksters seem to be, right, bringing about, now again, if you want to throw a really crazy question just to entertain, okay, if Yaakov hadn't deceived and received the bracha, would Hashem have said these words to Asa? We don't know. Right? You have to entertain that. We know how it ends, so we assume that was the plan all along. But you can entertain. Yaakov and Rivka never did what they did. Yitzchak gave the bracha to Esau. So then Hashem says to Esau, this whole land is going to be yours. We don't know, but we have to at least raise the possibility. Now, again, of course, it's not how it ends up for us, right? But it's not clear. It's not ki Yaakov yikaril chazer. That's for sure. And, and having Yitzhak as a point of contrast raises the question that much more powerfully, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, you said you don't want to answer the question. But I was just thinking that Yaakov was the first of the Yaakov that actually represented real life. The way, his struggles, his uh, challenges. Ah, okay, so excellent. So hold that. And so he had to use that Listen, Avram had plenty of challenges, yeah, right? Avram didn't yeah, have it simple. Yeah, Avram, I would say the difference, the main difference would be, I don't think Avram's life was easier per se, yeah. at least not up to this point, but I will agree with you that Avram, every time things got tough, that's when, if you look at the pattern, that's when Hashem stepped in and said, Avram, I know it looks bleak, but trust me, it's going to work out. Avram didn't have an easier life. He had right. the constant divine reassurance, right. which Yaakov may not have had. And, right. and certainly Rivka did not have in a clarified way. That's really he important. Was the beginning of Israel, and so he was the archetype, actually. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways. But again, we can't read what happens later into why he did what he did now, right? You're already reading into what his life became, and that sort of validates retroactively. The simplest shot is that Yitzchak was blind. <laughs> that's the answer. No, so why didn't Rivka go in and say, listen, Yitzchak, I know you like him, but I'm telling you, that's not what God wants. Outside of their, their first meeting, they didn't seem to communicate that much. Yeah, but, but or um, just say But, but that was the, the whole reason was that if Yitzchak hadn't been blind, he would have seen the pros and cons of both sons. Yeah, but he was blind, not deaf. Hashem could have said, Yitzchak, Yaakov is the next son. Give him the bracha. Right? Meaning, yes, the metaphor of the but blindness is important. Families, it was not the family dynamic that, that being 
Listen, I'm not disagreeing with anyone. We're going to get back to it next week. Let's just read one last really, really quick narrative, and then I'll call you in two seconds. Let's just read one really quick narrative, because it's a narrative we forget so often to focus on, but it's really, really critical. We all love that Yaakov goes to the well, and he falls in love with Rachel, and it's so beautiful because she's pretty, and he falls in love, and it's the most beautiful love story. But just look really, really quickly, okay, at what happens in Perak Chavtet. Yaakov gets to this area, okay, and read, start with Pasuk Bet. Okay. There's three different right herds of sheep standing there. What are they waiting for? Because everyone who lives in that area is going to give their sheep to drink from that well. But there's a huge stone stopping up the air. Why such a big stone? Because the theory is it's too heavy for any one shepherd to move, but as soon as all of them get there, then they have the manpower to lift it up. What does it guarantee? And it says, right? And that's how that city worked. Right, he says, guys, it's getting dark. Why don't you? And again, this is his type scene. Okay? Right? Odenu midaber, and Rivka shows up and gives. So this is his type scene. Odenu midaber imam, v'rachel ba'a im hatzon asher la'avia ki ro'ahi. V'yihika asher ra'aya kovet rachel bat lavan achi imo, v'etzon lavan achi imo, v'yigash Yaakov, v'yagel et ha'even ne'al pi ha'be'er, v'yashketzon lavan achi imo. And then he kisses Rachel, Rachel, etc., etc. What did he just do? He came to an, a city, village, whatever you want to call it, where they had protocol, and he. But more than that, he broke. supposed to be the Ishoalim, the wimp. And he ended up being Superman. Correct. He did something, right, that would seem physically impossible, and he broke the rules. He broke protocol. They had their rules, and he came and said, Neh. Now, again, we're not judging good, bad, but this is what Yaakov's well type scene is about. Okay? No, 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 no. They didn't. They were waiting for everyone to come. And he says, nope. And he just moves the thing. Okay, so we're going to end on this really important question. Why does, what is the Tanakh teaching us by presenting this trickster archetype as one of, right, the Avot? What are we supposed to learn from it? What do we glean from it? We're not, and, and, and we're going to see, I think there's something really, really profound in this whole discussion that is critical, that like you were mentioning, is the beginning of B'nai Israel. It's right here. It's with Yah. Okay. All right. Have a great day. Yes.